What's good, everybody? My name is Dr. Bettina Love. And my name is Chelsea Cully Love. And you are listening to Teaching to Thrive. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Teaching to Thrive. We took a few months off, but we are back, and we are back with the one and only Rodney Robinson, National Teacher of the Year. What's up, man? What's going on? What's going on? It's always good to work with you all. Oh, it's great Great to hear your voice. Hey, Rodney. So we we know a little bit about you, and is it cool if I read your bio to let our listeners know a little bit more? Works for me. All right. Thank you so much. So Rodney is a 20-year teaching veteran. He graduated from King William High School in rural Virginia in 1996. That's the year I graduated too. He received a bachelor's degree in history from Virginia State University in 2000 and a master's in educational administration and supervision from VCU in 2011. He started teaching at the Virgie Benford Education Center in 2015, a school inside Richmond Juvenile Detention Center, in an effort to better understand the school-to-prison pipeline. His classroom was a collaborative partnership between himself and his students. The knowledge he gained from his students also helped to develop alternative programs to keep students from becoming part of the school-to-prison pipeline. He has received numerous awards for his accomplishments in and out of the classroom. He worked with Pulitzer Prize winning author James Foreman to develop curriculum units on race, class, and punishment as a part of the Yale's Teacher Institute. He was named 2019 Teacher of the Year. He used his time as Teacher of the Year to advocate for cultural equity to make sure students have teachers and administrators who look like them and value their culture. He was recently named HBCU Male Alumnus of the Year by HBCUdigest.com. He was also named number eight on the Roots Magazine's Top 100 Influential African Americans of 2019. Come on now. He is currently the senior advisor with Richmond Public Schools. Hey, Rodney, what they say about Virginia? What is Virginia? What are we? What are we? Two up, two down. Up two down. Okay. Welcome, Rodney. Okay, now see, I'm outnumbered today because these both because <laughs> are from Virginia, so they go hard. Yeah, VA all day. Hey, all day. <laughs> I ain't gonna say now. Come on, New York. Well, listen. You know, we talk on this podcast and the Abolitionist Teacher Network about abolition, about you know dismantling and abolishing mass incarceration, abolishing the police, abolishing ICE, and here you are, the National Teacher of the Year, 2019 National Teacher of the Year, and you worked and taught in what we call juvenile, what I call juvenile injustice centers. And so, tell us your desire, tell us your motivation for wanting to create change and do abolitionist work 
inside of juvenile injustice centers? Well, my desire actually came from burnout. You know, I had spent 15 years in Richmond Public Schools and I was working at, um, spent most of my time at Armstrong High School. It's one of those schools where that has been economically, racially segregated from the city. Um, to put it in context, there are six major housing projects in the city of Richmond. Five of them feed into Armstrong High School. And so it's just that type of school that has been cut off from the rest of the city. However, I loved it. I loved working with that community, working with those kids. But 12 years was just burning me out. And so I got a call from, you know, for a friend of mine who had just gotten a principalship at the um, jail. You know, I, I said detention center all the time. It's a jail. You know, people get that confused. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she called me and said, hey, you know anybody who'd be a good history teacher? I was like, I don't know. Then she's like, let me be real. I want you to come down here and teach. <laughs> and I was like, why, why me? She's like, because they're, they're the same kids you're teaching at Armstrong. Same kids you taught at with. It's those same kids that have fallen through the cracks. And all they need is somebody who would work with them and somebody who just understands what they're going through. And so me, I was like, mm, I don't know. Because me, I'm claustrophobic. Let's be honest. You know, <laughs> going into a locked building just freaks me out sometimes. But then, you know, that's like, it was just like one of those fake things. Like a week after we had this conversation, that's when the U.S. Department of Education released that first report on the school to prison pipeline in 2015. Mm. And then I was reading the report, and guess which state was the number one state in referring students to the juvenile justice system? Mm. Happened to be Virginia, point that I'm not proud of in my state. And so I was like, you know what? That's telling me something. I can read books. I can do all this stuff. But I want to go work with the kids. I learn most by working with kids. And so I decided I'm going to go down here, and I'm going to work with these kids and just see what's up. You know, what what's going on in the system that has caused them to be there? What's going on in their lives? Is there something that I could have done that the system could have done to prevent them from coming from going to jail? And so I was, I was like, you know what? I'm doing it. And so then I went down there. And then I remember the first day, the first class I had walked in, three kids that I had just failed at Armstrong High School were in that class. Wow. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I failed these kids, and now they're down here locked up. You know, so it just was one of those moments that let you know, look, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing ain't ain't working. And so it really caused me to question my pedagogy, my attendance, because the kids were smart. You know, the kids could have passed my class easily, but other things got in their way and kept them from class, kept them from doing the work, kept them from keeping up. And I just didn't see that at the time. And so it just caused me to change everything. I went to... um, Yale to work with James Foreman. You know, he wrote the book, Locking Up Our Own. Mm-hmm. And so just learning about the prison system. And I figured I'm going to teach my kids about the system so that they can get out. of it. Because so many of them get, I mean, two thirds of students who go to juvenile detention centers never graduate. And so I'm going to teach them how to survive this system. And the best way I can teach them how to survive it is tell them that it's not your fault you're here. This right. system was designed to eat you up. Mm. You know, now what we can do is we can become smart and just work our way out of the system, work our way so that we can say, nah, you didn't get me. I'm above you. I'm better than the system. Mm-hmm. And so and that was my whole mindset with working with my students, just saying, look, we can kick the system's butt, you know, just work with me. You know, I know what it takes. I'm going to give you what the tools it takes. 
but we just got to work together to make sure that you can become free. Wow. So, so as a teacher, I'm listening to this and I know that impact is huge. And, and as a teacher, you want to hear how the things that you're doing help to shift and shape lives. How did your students show that impact that you were making on them? Well, one thing I always tell them is that you're in control. You're in control. You know, one thing I often teach them is about decisions, how to make better decisions in life, because the decisions that you make are the reason that you're here. Even though the system is designed to get you, there are ways to make better decisions within the system. And so I'm just going to work with them. I'm going to teach them how to advocate for themselves, how to become, you know, I want you to go to court understanding every single thing about your case. That way, instead of relying on a public defender, you can stand up and say, no, I understand this. I want better. And so that's now that was one of the major ways I did it was just teaching them, speak up, advocate for yourself. But here are the tools you need to speak up. Here's the education you need. Here are the public speaking tools you need. And so I want them to go and just say, hey, I deserve better based on, you know, the circumstances of my life. And quite honestly, that's, and you know, I got to know the judges. Some of them were terrible. Some of them were good. But a lot of them liked that. They wanted a kid to take ownership of their life. And when you give them the tools and show them how they can overcome and how they can make better decisions, then that imp- that's impressive. And so it shows that they're learning something. And quite honestly, those are the kids who don't come back. The kids who learn something. The kids who say, I deserve better. And then to see them take that to their comprehensive school, you know, and they're causing problems in their comprehensive school because they're saying, I deserve better. You know, they're, they're advocating for, hey, I need you to get my transcripts straight so that I can graduate on time. I know what it takes to get in college. I know what it takes to join the military. You know, whatever their career plans are, we're going to put you on the right path and give you the tools and information to go along that path so that you can always speak up for yourself. I mean, what, what you're showing is that, you know, so much of the system is around hating black and brown children. So much of the system is about criminalizing us. Yes. And, you, and when you remove those things and give us the tools, we can't succeed. Exactly. That's what but it's I all about. I want to go back to something that you said, because it really, like, shook me, is that your first day teaching, you walk in and there's three students that you failed that are now... You're looking across from them. How did you emotionally deal with that? It was hard. It was hard because I got a chance to talk to them. One of the reasons I failed them was strictly attendance policies. Mm-hmm. You know, they never showed up to class. You know, they never, they didn't do the work. And so, unfortunately, that caused them to fail, you know. And so, me, is like, wait a minute. How many other kids have I let down through this over the years with this? How many other kids have I not gotten to know the way I should know to give them the tools they need. And so it was really humbling. It was, I mean, it was probably the most humbling moment I've ever had in education because it let me know that, hey, man, what you're doing is wrong. You need to change up. You know, and it it really took a lot of self-reflection, a lot of I got to do better, questioning pretty much a lot of things that I was taught, a lot of things that I had learned and really caused me to change everything. Mm. (laughs) Just one of those moments. So I'm hearing relationships, I'm hearing bonding and building. So how how did you establish or reestablish a relationship with your students that you had before when you were in a new space, but there was already history there? 
Well, a lot of it is because one, there were less students. You know, let's be honest. You know, I had, I went from having a thousand students at comprehensive school to having 60 in the juvenile detention center. So with less students, you can get to know them a little better. And one thing I always do is I've been embedded in the Richmond community for 20 years. You know, one thing I always do with my kids is within six questions that we can find somebody that we know in common. You know, <laughs> so that whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon game, I do that with my students. It's like, where you from? You know, who your people? You know, oh, you from this neighborhood? Bam, I know this dude, you know. And by just using that connections, we're going to find someone that we have in common. You know, and you know your street, I always tell people, what's your street cred with the kids? That's right. Your, you know, because if you if they say, oh, he cool with this person and I rock with this person, okay, I'm gonna give them a chance. And so, and that's what that's what it's all about, is just working on that street cred. Luckily, I like I said, I've been working, you know, not just at the school, I've been working in the community for 20 years. You know, I've been at the Boys and Girls Club, I've been standing, you know, on the block in the projects talking to people, and that that's what builds community. And when kids see those types of things, they get to know you and they know that you have their best interests at heart. That kid knows that they're not just another person that you encounter on the record every day. They know that you care about them, that you're going to give them the tools to be successful. And so that's what it's all about. It's about building that street cred with the kids. I love that you talk about this idea of street cred because I say that all the time. Like, I need to know your street cred. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When I, whenever I see new teachers or other teachers... I don't pay attention to what the uh, administration or anybody says about them. What are the kids saying about you? There you, you know? go. And that that's those are the opinions that I hold value. And when I, if I get 10 kids and seven of them are saying the same thing about you, then I know that that, that is true, whatever they're saying. You know, they, they're like, oh, this teacher does this. Then the next person, this teacher does this. Next person, this teacher does this. Well, that teacher must evidently do that. If three different right. kids come up to me and say that this teacher does this. And so I think we need to start giving students a little more credibility, you know, start empowering their voices when it comes to looking at who's a good teacher and who's not a good teacher. They're the most important people to me when it comes to that. Yeah. So let's let's shift a little bit to this idea of abolition. Since you are someone who has taught in this idea of, of mass incarceration, what are the things you think are the ways in which we can start to tear this thing down piece by piece? When we talk about abolition and prison abolition, the school-to-prison pipeline, or what Dave Stallball and Erica Miner talk about, the school-to-prison nexus, which means it's not even a pipeline. You're just in it. If your school is set up as a prison, it's not a pipeline. You're actually in yeah. it. Yeah. So, so what, are the, what are the ways in which you see if we're going to take this thing down piece by piece? What are some of the things we need to start thinking about? Like, yes, everybody's talking about, you know, we need to get police out of schools. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. However... We are in a virtual space right now and black and brown children still being suspended. We talk about the Zoom, the prison pipeline. So like, how do we uproot this thing? I think in America as a whole, just like in the adult prison system, we need to start looking at what is punishment. You know, far too often we, everything is about punishment, punishment, punishment. Nothing is about, okay, reflection, doing better, you know? Because when a kid ends up with us, it's just a result of the failure of the social safety net. That's right. That's really all it is. You know, that kid committed a robbery or sells drugs because he's hungry and he need to eat and put food on his family's table. You know what I mean? That student may have committed some sort of heinous act because he had those acts committed to him or her. And so they're just repeating a cycle that never was taken care of. They never got the counseling that they needed. And so, so often 
our crime, the crimes that students commit to come to the system are crimes of survival or crimes of trauma, trauma that they're repeating or trauma that is lashing out because of something that's happened to them. And far too often, school and society, we're not set up to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, we pass children along. We just say, OK, you're not my problem today. Move on to the next teacher without getting to the core issue of what's wrong. You know, it starts with something as simple as out-of-school suspension. I don't understand why we kick suspend kids. The purpose of school is to educate people, to make them better for society. Then why do we put them out? You know, our job is to teach students how to learn from that behavior, how to correct their behavior. But so often we just want to remove them, not my problem for this day, not my problem for this week. You know, and then we need to get rid of that mentality and really start focusing on healing our students, fixing their trauma, fixing their food insecurities, fixing their housing insecurities, fixing all those issues that are causing them to act out in school, that are causing them to be violent, that are causing them to do some of these things that they do. And so until we fix that social safety net and re-examine how we view punishment in America, in schools and in society, we're going to have everything is meant to go to this pipeline because prison fixes everything. That's our solution to everything, to a problem that we don't want to fix is the answer is prison. We got kids in the foster care. You know what makes me so mad about my school? We have kids there who have not committed a crime or a very minor crime simply because the foster care system cannot find placement for them. Wow. We have kids. I'm not joking. We've had kids that spent six months to a year with us because they cannot find placement in foster care. You know, that, that, that blows my mind. And when I go to that school, at least 25% of the population every day is because the foster care system is so broken. There's nowhere for them to go, so we're going to keep them locked up. And so those are the types of things that we need to start fixing. You know, we've talked about defunding the police. Yeah, defund the police and put that money into the hands of the people to solve some of their issues, to get to, to get them counseling, to get them housing, to get them the things they need. You know, if we really want to abolish that school-to-prison pipeline, we need to find the money to fix our social safety net because ultimately every problem that needs to be solved that government can't solve, we use prison as an answer. And that's so just not the way it goes. That that answer was, to be honest, I, I had a question and hearing you say that students are kept in these prisons as a fix for the foster care system, it took my breath away and made me sick. And I, I, I couldn't ask you my question. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, there's no reason for you to apologize. Yeah. That is sickening. Um, and so I'm, I'm just wondering, as we look at the education system, what do you think needs to be the structure of the education system so that we can help to really solve some of these issues that are pressing in education right now? How would you how would you restructure the education system? How would I restructure? I would make a wide scale movement to get more black and brown people in education. You know, that to me, that solves a lot of our issues. And not just black and brown people, but we're talking about properly developed black and brown people who believed in the abolitionist mindset in the education. Because so many of our systems are based on the white European structure. That's basically what our systems are. And so anything that does that does not conform to that system, we shun it. We try to push it out. 
If we get more black and brown people in education who can advocate for our students, who can advocate for our communities, who can advocate for the things we need, then we'll slowly start to crumble all of these structures. You know, from the simple fact of a black teacher who understands that gifted is a whole different thing. You know, sometimes gifted can be expressed through dance. Gifted can be expressed through music. Gifted doesn't have to be taken through a test. You know, if we get more people who understand that mindset in positions of power making decisions, then that's better for our children. If we get more people with an abolitionist mindset in charge of discipline who want to heal our children rather than punish our children, that makes the system better. If we get more teachers who are willing to stand up and call out racism, sexism, homophobia in education, it makes things better for our system. But right now, our system doesn't reward those teachers. Our system punishes those teachers and our system doesn't want to promote or give those people positions of power because it makes them uncomfortable. You know, we we only get positions of power until we make somebody uncomfortable. That's one thing I found out this year. Oh, great. He's the (laughs) National Teacher of the Year. Okay, let's hear what he got to say. But then when I open my mouth, jaws drop to the floor because now you're uncomfortable, you know, but that's okay. I'm going to keep speaking my truth. You know, and that's what we need to do. We need to start empowering and rewarding people who have the courage to stand up and fight for our babies and start getting rid of these people, you know, who don't. And that's that's number one. I think before we need addition, we need a lot of subtraction. We need to get rid of a lot of teachers who just, like I always say, I can fix bad pedagogy. We can fix that. I can't fix bad morals, bad ethics, and people who don't believe in our children. I can't fix that. And so if you don't believe in that, then you got to go. Plain and simple. No, I love that. I I love it all. I love this idea that I can fix bad pedagogy. But if you are corrupt morally, I can't fix that. Nope. If you don't see black and brown children for who we are and see how beautiful we are, what you want me to do? Exactly. Like, I I love that. And I love also this idea of abolition because an abolitionist doesn't believe in punishment. We don't believe that black children are criminals. And so from the very beginning, if we hire teachers who have an abolitionist understanding, then the whole idea of punishment leaves education. And why should we be punishing children? They're children. Exactly. Kids will be kids. <laughs> right. And that's also, you know, a loss of black childhood. Yeah, when exactly. black don't get to be kids, when they're punished for every single thing that they do. I may yeah, not get on the tangent, but yesterday I saw AT&T commercial and I don't know if you remember during the George Floyd protest, there was this little black girl who was marching, you know, just speaking her truth. And then I'm like, AT&T is using this for a commercial? <laughs> you guys snatched that little girl's innocence. You guys have snatched her childhood to the point where she has to go in the street and march with such passion. And you guys trying to use that to sell me a phone? Right. And if she goes into the school with that same passion. Yeah. Oh, she's loud. She, we she's loud. There, her. You go. there you go. Right? We're going to push her out. We're going to push her out. There you go. Exactly. Right. And so that, that pissed me off yesterday, you know, not to get off on a different tangent. But no, you just pissed me off now. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, they use our voice, mm-hmm. our anger, our rage to sell. But that same voice, that same anger, that same rage can't be in schools. No, 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 no. That's the SEL curriculum, actually. Mm-hmm. That that anger, that voice, that rage is what they base SEL curriculum on to tell us how we are the problem and this is the problem. That's how they sell these SEL curricula. 
Exactly. It's, it's, it's just wild. It's just wild. I'm just, I'm so thankful for your voice and so thankful for all the courage behind your voice. Appreciate it. I know it had to be something. So um, <laughs> let's talk about where we are, right? We are, I don't know, hopefully 60 days uh, until Trump, maybe 58 days until Trump has 57, to pass. 57. 57. There 57. you go. I know. 57. <laughs> it's the countdown is real. Yep. <laughs> so as Joe Biden begins to fill his cabinet, I mean, you, you wrote a piece November 14th talking about, you know, this is one of the most important positions in the cabinet, which is the secretary of education. And for the last four years, we have had the most, there's so many adjectives I could use to describe Betsy DeVos. Unqualified <laughs> will be the one I'll just use for right now. Yeah. Um, I would say cruel. cruel. Right. Cruel, unqualified. Yes. She has her cruelty behind incompetence and people yeah, are like, Oh, she's just incompetent. It's not incompetence. It's cruelty. It's cruelty with a passion and a purpose. And so we need to stop trying to, give them credit, discredit them by saying, oh, they're just incompetent. No, they're cruel human beings who don't deserve anything. Yes. Yes. So what do you think, I mean, I don't know who Biden's pick for Secretary of Education would be, but what are you looking for out of his pick? Um, I want somebody with a record of working with black and brown children and poor children, you know? Like I said in the piece, far too often we talk about people as education experts. You know, you're not an expert to me if you if you never work with poor black or brown children. Plain and simple. Especially considering black and brown children are the majority in our country right now. White kids are no longer the majority. And I know that's something that scares a lot of white people. But white students are no longer the majority in American education. Black and brown students are. So we need a, a person who runs the U.S. Department of Education who says, wait a minute, I have a history and I understand black and brown populations and I understand what it takes for them to succeed. You know, because as I look at the list, I'm like, oh, boy, not, <laughs> feel, not feeling this person, not feeling that person, not feeling some of the people on the transition team. You know, we need people with proven records of working with black and brown populations. And then when I see the people on the list, like, okay, they have a proven track record. Like, you know, my sister in Baltimore, now all of a sudden, all these people are coming out to attack her and discredit her. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you're trying to maintain a status quo. I sent out a tweet yesterday. It's like, that's I'm scared because all of Joe Biden's picks have been status quo. You know, trying to restore, quote unquote, normalcy to our government. We don't need that status quo in education. We need somebody who's an outside the box thinker, somebody who believes in all children, somebody who doesn't have a political agenda, somebody who doesn't have a personal agenda, just somebody who believes in the holistic education of all children. You know, we got we got far too many people out there with that expert title who's never taught a day in their life. Who right. never taught a kid, you know, have you taught a kid who's been hungry? You know, have you taught a kid that came to school after, you know, having a traumatic event that happened that morning? You know, what what are you teaching? What gives you the right to be called an expert? You know, just because you have a PhD from, you know, Harvard or some other school. I tell people, into I put my 21 years of experience in Richmond Public Schools against any PhD in this country. You better you know? say it. <laughs> you know, because that I, I, I learned 
what it takes to educate black and brown children, you know, but do you have that? Do you understand that? And, you know, and that's just strictly from a number standpoint. They are the majority of our students now. So we need someone with the history. And like I said, it could be somebody white. I don't care. But you better have a record of working with black and brown children. You know, you need to have somebody who pretty much values teacher voice. You know, somebody who will bring teachers to the table and say, let's make these decisions. You know, and that's really that's what I want. I just want somebody who really cares about children, not about agendas, not about, you know, who's supporting them, not about just children. That's what I want. So as we talk about Joe Biden's pick for secretary of education, uh, I'm curious as to how you learned about yourself and your craft and education as your role or in your role as National Teacher of the Year through the Trump administration. What was that like? Oh, man, that was, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was, it was weird. First of all, Teacher of the Year thing is weird, period. Because, you know, if you're about to work, you're about working with these kids all day, every day. You're about doing that. And now you're taking me out of the classroom and you put me in the spotlight, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, so now it's like what I say, people are actually listening to. And so now I'm stuck in the situation where I'm, you know, teacher of the year. First of all, I'm a black man. Let's be real. And had one of us in the position in 20 and 30 years almost. And so that automatically put me in a different space. And then there was just, so much stuff that you have to deal with <laughs> that other people don't have to deal with. You know, and I had them, like, I'll give you the first example. When I was sitting, you know, in the room with, you know, some people from CCSSO who run the Teacher of the Year program, and we got a um, text, they got a call that says, yes, we got a formal ceremony for the White House. And I was like, I was like cool, we got a date because the Trump administration is so unorganized, but you, you know that. And so, and then they were like, yeah, we got a date. We're celebrating. Oh, by the way, you're not going to be in the White House and President Trump is not going to meet with you. I'm like, what? But they see nothing wrong with this. They're going about celebrating. Oh, we got a date for a ceremony. I'm like, how am I supposed to deal with this? You know, (laughs) I'm a black man. Trump's not meeting with me. I didn't even get a formal invite to the White House. You know, How how am I not supposed to feel a certain way about this? And they're going on telling me this, telling me that, and blah. And I'm like, I'm in my feelings already <laughs> from day from the, from the moment. This is even before I even went on CBS this morning. And so I was like, this is gonna be a rough, rough year. And so then, you know, so, you know, I talked to someone. They's like, well, he's gonna do it because he's not that stupid. Behind the scenes, you know, there was some pro- NAACP Urban League. Everybody was on it, you know. So they's like, he's gonna do it. But I never got a formal invite to the White House. First teacher of the year to have a complete media blackout of my ceremony. No media was allowed. Also, first teacher of the year to have other teachers of the year do a political protest during Washington week. You know, <laughs> you know, and like I said, I don't have an issue with them doing a protest, but normally everybody falls in line with the national teacher of the year. And this year didn't happen. So I can't say it was because I was a black teacher, male teacher of the year. I can't say it wasn't, but I know it happened this year when you have a black male national teacher of the year. So, and so I just had to deal with so much of that. People getting up, walking out on my speeches, getting death threats. I mean, all kinds of craziness because 
the country is so divided. You know, I, you think a simple message of all children deserve quality education couldn't, shouldn't be so political, you know, but it was just a unique year. And I remember I was giving a speech, you know, in Kentucky. And I remember I'm talking about equity. I'm talking about, you know, these social mindsets. And I get people literally getting up, walking out. Wow. You know, carrying on conversations in the hallway with the doors open. Like, I'm not even speaking. And so I just kind of had a moment where it's like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to be me. (laughs) So I went to the back of the room and I shut the door on all the people that was outside. And I said, look, we're going to have this conversation whether you want to have it or not. You know, if you don't want to have it, you can go on outside with everybody else, you know. But we have people in this room, we're going to have this conversation right now. And so that was a moment I said, you know what? Be you, man. Don't go into this thing trying to make people happy, trying to dance around the issues. Be you. You know, be funny. You know, because I always, I'm, I'm a jokester. Be a jokester. Be you. Own this. This is who you actually are. And so from that moment on, I just said, you know what? I'm going to make this my own. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to say what I want to say. Even when I know it's going to cause me a ton of headaches, I'm still going to say what I need to say because my job, I tell people, I'm not representing teachers. I'm representing these students. And these students need somebody who's going to keep it real, somebody who's going to talk about their issues, somebody who doesn't care about the pushback, and somebody who's going to be kind of in your face. And so that, and that's what I decided I would do with my whole year was – I'm going to be in your face whether you want it or not. And honestly, I remember some ceremonies, things got really intense because I can't remember where I was. Somebody called my kids convicts and and I pretty much lost it. You know what I mean? Because, you know, if you say stuff like that to kids, kids believe the words you call them, plain and simple. And so you're not going to call my kids convicts and think that that's going to be okay with me. You know, so now you you really set it off for me, and it, it got real heated that day up in that. And I can't even remember where I was. I went to so many places, but um, I just remember just having those moments over and over again, and just the constant fragility of people not wanting to have those conversations. People coming up to me telling me I was wrong or I didn't understand. Like I don't have twenty years of experience and two educational degrees, but no, I don't understand the issue. You know, and this was black and white people. Let's be honest. That's right. Some, That's right. <laughs> you know, we got some brothers and sisters who who are just as bad uh, as white people. Ooh. And so we need to start calling these people out. And I've run to so many of them over the years. And, you know, and I like to think in the end, I've made more friends than enemies, you know, because I do believe that a lot of people want to do right. But sometimes when you challenge them, it, it creates that uneasy uncomfortable feeling but like i think about the boondocks when riley said i want to give you that uncomfortable feeling that make you angry and want to do something you know and that's what and that's what i'm gonna do when i'm having these conversations you know so i'm i'm gonna work on i'm gonna tell you a story you know that's gonna make you cringe in your seat you know that's when i know i got the audience and i'm telling them these stories and you see the people kind of shifting in their seat like they're uncomfortable it's like yeah that's what i want I want you to feel uncomfortable because imagine what my kids are going through every day, going into schools, going through metal detectors first thing in the morning, getting thrown into exceptional education classes with 15 other students with all different exceptionalities, no teacher's aid, you know, dealing with that sort of thing every day. And you're going to get uncomfortable because I'm mentioning that. Come on, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what that was sort of the teacher of the year thing was it's about 
finding my voice. And, you know, I found a lot of people didn't want to hear my voice, but I also found a lot of people did want to hear my voice. And I think <laughs> I think I had a moment when I was on the NEA stage. I don't know if you've ever been to the NEA conference. It's like 10,000 10, people from all over the country. And I gave a speech about needing more black and brown teachers. And I was like, I don't know how well this went over. You know what I mean? You know, people clap, but you don't know, you know? And I had an old black lady, you know, you always count on always count on the ancestors to come through. She came up to me, she's like, you know, I've been at this conference for 40 years. That's the first time anybody's ever said that on that stage. Wow. You know, and I was like, humbling, you know, to get that respect. You know, I'm always gonna respect those that, you know, whose shoulders I stand upon. But for her to say nobody's ever said that on this stage in 40 years, that, that really hurt me. You know what I mean? It's like, we got a lot of work to do. And so I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to keep doing this work. I'm going to keep making you uncomfortable. <laughs> so Rodney, uh, Tina and I have just thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and hearing from you, your experiences, like you said, telling people stuff that makes them uncomfortable that, that happened in this, in this conversation, not because I'm uncomfortable at the fact that, you said it just at the fact that this is happening and, and how shattering and heartbreaking it is to hear what these babies are having to go through every single day. And as, as their teacher, as their advocate, as someone who stands with them, um, it's important for you to be able to find space for yourself. So we're going to close with the question that we ask all of our guests. And this is coming from teacher to teacher and understanding the importance of this. So Rodney, how do you find your joy? What's your joy? What's my joy? Honestly, these kids, you know what I mean? Finding the joy in, the, in their joy, especially, you know, in my old school, Armstrong. One thing I do is I stay grounded in that community. And so when I see them experiencing life without stress, that's my center in place. I remember earlier this year, you know, after the national championship game in New Orleans, I went through, I mean, I went through hell in New Orleans, just a whole bunch of behind the scenes mess and people just dealing with the the politics and the facts, just the, the crap that comes along with having a platform. And I went, came back home and I was just like, what is this all about? I don't even want to do this no more. I don't even want to go travel no more. I don't want to speak no more. And I remember I went to a basketball game, you know, at my old school and I called the game because I was PA announcer for, you know, 15, 20 years in East End. And just being there, seeing those kids, the basketball players, the cheerleaders, the mamas, the cousins, the uncles, the people I've been with my entire career, that's what kept me grounded. Because let me know that, look, it ain't about it ain't about you, Rodney. It's about making people's lives better. And so as long as I can come back and get that love, then no matter what I go through, I know it's all worth it. Because I know there are a group of people who know my ups, who know my downs, who are just going to give me that unconditional love. And that's why I tell people, East End, Richmond, Virginia, it's one of the hardest places you will ever live, but it's also one of the most loveliest places you will ever come from. Because when that community loves you and have your back, trust me, they got your back no matter what. And so whenever I go through it, I just get up with a group of former students, get up with some parents, some coaches, just people I know who know me, who just know that we're about this work of being abolitionists for our kids. And that's what keeps me grounded as a teacher. 
Uh, well, listen, it has been our honor to have you on the podcast. And for folks listening, please go to Twitter. Your Twitter is lit. Like you keep it 100 and your Twitter be all 110. So if you yeah, listen, go to his Twitter at Rod Robinson RVA at Rod Robinson RVA. Follow him. Send him some likes because you be going in on every single body and I love it. So listen, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thank you so much for being you and the courage and the love that you bring to the work. It truly inspires me. So I'm so glad that we've had an opportunity to meet. I'm so glad that you're from Virginia. Go ahead. And, uh, okay. VA all day. And you're doing the work around the country, brother. So we just send you all the love and light and say thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you. Teaching to Thrive was produced by Dr. Bettina Love, Chelsea Cully Love, and Dr. Kelly Morgan Gunn. The musical arrangement was provided by Dr. Gail Surden. We'd also like to thank our kids for being one.